Hey everybody, welcome to episode 15 of the Asking for a Parent podcast. And this is our second last episode. So again, it gives me great pleasure to thank you all for all the calls and in emails and getting in contact with the show over the last few weeks. We know it's busy for everyone, so thank you for taking the time. This episode is a really special episode. Normally we talked and have talked to a majority of mums over the experiences of parenting over the last number of episodes. But this week's episode is with a dad and it's with a guy called Shane Smith, who if you're one of his 10,000 Twitter followers, you'll know exactly who he is. Shane is a primary school teacher, a sports scientist, an elite level coach, and has a great interest in children's sport. He has some really interesting philosophies to share around how we encourage participation and fun in children's sport. And I think anyone who has a vague interest in the well-being of children, albeit through physical or through play, needs to listen to this episode. So without further ado, I'll let you get on and listen to myself and Shane Smith. This week on the Asking for a Parent podcast, I'm delighted to invite Shane Smith as one of our guests. For many of you who'll be one of his 10,000 Twitter followers, you'll know Shane very well. But to introduce him, Shane Smith is a dad, a primary school teacher, sports scientist, an avid sports fan, a coach of one of the most prominent men's senior GAA teams, and an expert in children's coaching and sport. To give you some background, I met Shane last year at a radio panel uh, on a 2FM show. And the reason why he sprang to mind as a must-have guest on the Asking for a Parent podcast because I think he has some really important things to share and he makes so much sense when he talks. Shane really left an imprint on me once I met him and I think he'll have the same effect on you. So Shane, you're very welcome and thank you very much for agreeing to be part of the Asking for a Parent series. And first off, I mean, as a dad, what's, what's parenting like for you? What, what, what do you see? And, and we ask all the guests this to open. What's the value system for parenting for you in terms of your own children and introduce us to your family? Hello, Colin. Thank you very much for, for asking me on. Delighted to have a chat with you. Uh, what, what does parenting mean to me? I suppose the word that springs to mind as a parent is, is it's a privilege. And, you know, I, I always wanted to be a parent. It's not something that just landed on me. I always wanted to be a dad from looking at my, my nephews and nieces growing up. And I said, I, one day I would love to be a dad. And I'm so lucky that I'm a dad of three, three beautiful children. I have a little girl who's nine. I have a little boy who's seven and another little boy who's almost two. So, yeah, I would use the word privilege a lot. And I suppose when, when you're handed that little, little bundle of joy in, in the hospital and suddenly it's, a, it's, it's totally overwhelming, the feelings of, I suppose, of, of, of pure joy and, and pure love. And, and, and the journey just starts then, you know, and that journey has so many magical moments. One moment I really I loved it, my three children in particular, was when they hit the, you know, maybe two, three or four months and, and they look up at you and, and they smile. And they give you that first little sign of, of, of social play. And it's like, I recognize you. You recognize me. I love you. And you love me. And those little moments are, are beautiful. And I, I love those little moments with my kids. And in, in terms of values, I suppose, like, like I tweet a lot about coaching. And so my values in parenting probably mirrors that. It's very, very simple values. Just like saying thank you, you know, like the simplest of all value my children I was coaching under sevens yesterday and my little boy was then and said you know make sure you say thank you to the other coaches you know and I said to all the other children too we had a great morning here this morning hadn't we you know we had lots of help here will we say thank you to the other coaches and that that gratitude and, and that that respect and those manners I think will will stand you in good stead throughout life absolutely and I think that, that 
it's one of the hardest things to do, I think, as a parent. I mean, getting reminding children to say thank you. You know, I just noticed that struggle with my own parents. They, they kind of still need a lot of prompting around that. And I don't think it's, it's just a forgetful thing. But yeah, I mean, I think having a likable child is, goes a long way. Your child is courteous and polite. And I think I always kind of said myself, I never really want to be the parents or the, the, the family where people go, oh, no, here come the doctors. You have you know, troublesome <laughs> children or whatever the case may be. So, yeah, absolutely get that. But getting on to, and I, I'm delighted to have a dad's voice on the show, but I think your perspectives around the area of children's sport is, I think it's unique. I think it's powerful. And I think you have a lot of really sensible, incredible commentary on that. What What's your approach to sport with your own children? I mean, it's easy in the removed sense. And I know that myself as a therapist, you know, your ideology might be different to how you do it yourself. But what, what's the approach with you, with, for your own three in terms of sport? How, where does it feature in, in the Smith family? I think two, two, two little gifts to give, to give my children as much as I can is to give them the gift of my time and give them the gift of confidence, you know, to, to build them up. So I try and focus on those two things a lot as much as I can because they're very important for them going forward in life to know that they're valued and they have that confidence and they develop that confidence to maybe me giving them time as a dad. And that's very, very important to me too. How I view them playing sport, it's funny, like I, I have no super duper ambitions for my children to, to play for Ireland or to play for Dublin or play for Manchester United. I really don't. My ambitions for my children are so they go training, they meet their friends and they have fun. And I get so much more joy from my children walking in the gate and other children saying, hi, 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 how are you? How are you? That bond, that friendship, that being part of a team gives me so much more joy than whatever they might do between the white lines at the moment. So it's often, you know, if we look at why children play sport and why they give up sport, there's a really interesting study around that. It's like 38% of girls and, and 39% of boys, like almost 40% gave up sport because it's not fun anymore. And like, what are statistics? And there's so many areas coming that as coaches, like we've no control of, like we've no control of how the day went in school, or we've no control of how they got training, or we've no control of so many things. But what I do think we have control of in that one hour a week is to make training fun, and we can always include fun and enjoyment and friendship, and, and that's so so important. And as I bring my kids training, it's wonderful. I think one of the greatest things about being a dad is that you you get to kind of live some of your childhood again. So, uh, and play again and I love nothing better than going cycling with my children or I love nothing better than going for a walk with my children I bought myself a scooter last year and I'm not and not an electric scooter I bought myself a scooter last year so myself and my older two we'll go off scooting because it's just pure joy it's just pure fun so those sort of uh those sort of things are very very important to me that they just enjoy themselves I just have an image of you going down the road in a uh, Paw Patrol scooter and trying to <laughs> manage the curves and things. But, but I mean, that's a brilliant notion of the fun, that, that you get something out of sport and that you don't have this kind of notion of your children achieving in sport and you're not you know, giving them protein shakes at nine years of age and things like that to prep them for it. But, and, and I think there is that beauty of reliving your play time through sport. But 
is there, and I obviously working on it, and I'm very aware of telling listeners that when I hear stories of sport, they generally are, are not good stories because people end up sitting in front of me because of some sort of upset or trauma. And that idea of the parent reliving their own sporting life or unsuccessful sporting life through their child is a dynamic that can be problematic. You know what I mean? From the point of view of, um, we've, we see a lot around silent sidelines and parenting having to step, take a step back because they don't see the fun in sport. They see it as very intense and competitive. And what's that? What are your thoughts on that, Shane, in terms of, because I, I think in, from my point of view, I probably see a disproportionate amount of that where children are coming to me saying, I want to give up swimming, but my dad won't let me or that my, you know, and we have this kind of thing that's a big deal that we have to play sport and there's a pressure and all the things that you've described, the team, the camaraderie, the politeness, the rules, the fun, that all for me sounds amazing. But sometimes it shifts, doesn't it, into something else. Why does that happen? And what that's, what's that about? Well, if we look at some brilliant things that we see on sidelines over the weekend of games and things that you want to see, like you mentioned, quiet sidelines, brilliant. We'll see positive parents, brilliant. You'll see equal game time, relaxed coaches. We love to see encouragement. We love to see smaller sided games. We love to see like roll on, roll off subs, everyone getting that equal game time. And one of the most important ones to me, I love to see an irrelevance to winning or losing. And that's really hard um, sometimes to accept for players who played sport maybe at a really high level and they come back down to the under-9 team at 36, 37 years of age and they finish their sport and they want to impart that philosophy of winning and that culture of training twice a week and being really intense. Like all the research tells us, common, it does not work with children. And you have some stories as well around that. Being The reason why children are leaving sport is that it's not fun anymore. It's overly competitive and sometimes there's a change in philosophy. So for us to keep more children within sport is to meet those needs. And you will find children going up to play sport, to meet their friends and to have fun. So because sport can teach us so many things beyond what goes on between uh, on the pitch. Like sport can teach us about, about friendship, about resilience, about coaching, about how winning or losing Winning and losing, they happen all the time. There's a really interesting statistic around animals in the wild, the shark and the tiger, and they're successful 5% of the time. 5% of, the, of their hunts, they're successful. So they're failing all the time, you know. And, 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 and that's okay for us as coaches and for children to not win every single match. You know, I, a number of years ago, there was a team I know that they were unbeaten from under nine up to 13. And this was seen as a good thing. By, by certain people, but this was not a good thing whatsoever. Like, their role is to set children up for success. So by setting them up for success, winning and losing is part of that, and developing that resilience. And then when that team did eventually lose at under 13, I mean, can you imagine the impact that would have had on them? Because they never experienced it before. Mm. Their role is to ensure that we react the same to winning, and we react the same to losing. And if we can bring that into our sport as coaches, it'll give children a great chance to, su to succeed. And I think you're right. And I, I think counter-argument to this is always that, they're, that kids want competition and they want, they're, they're interested in the score and they want to win. I, I would share your voice in this and I have, it's not without its detractors, people saying, no, we should have competition and we should, have, this is all healthy. And 
I suppose from my point of view, we impose a lot of adult rules or adult expectations on children. And the idea that a child would retire from sport at seven because they were deemed to be not good enough or because, you know, that I, I, I absolutely, uh, that makes me feel really sad, actually, that somebody would be retired from sport at that age. But the other side of it is the other kids who are competitive, like how do you manage the different levels of approach? So the child who likes the competition is really interested in the winning and the other child who's just there for the fun. And, you know, uh, uh, how do we, how do coaches manage the difference or how do cultures or how do clubs manage the difference there? Well, I think fundamentally, like every child is full of potential. Every single child is full of potential. And as you said, we often write children off at 10, 11 years old. They're no good. They're, they're too small. Put them in cornerback. Or they're really tall. Put them midfield. You know, and we, we, we write children off very quickly. And this could be a child who plays cornerback from under 10 to under, under 18 or under 16. And that child could be a great wing forward. You know, we look at situations where we're not giving children opportunities sometimes because we want to win a match. So we value our free taker at under 11. And he's the free take from under 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. And no one else gets opportunity. But it could be a great potential free taker within that team who's just not given the opportunity. So a lot of this comes back to our, to our clubs. And a club set of guidelines or expectations or what is the club philosophy around developing players, you know? I mean, you take a basketball or a rugby club, for example. Let's say the under nine coach thinks that small-sided games are really beneficial because it includes many children. Wonderful. But the under 10 coach in the same club could say, no, I'm going to do laps because I want them to get fit. And the under 11 coach in the same club could say, um, I don't believe in small-sided games. I believe in larger-sided games. So everyone's, we're going to play 6v6 if it's GA or soccer, or we're going to play 10v10. And then the 12 coach might, 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 might have a wonderful philosophy around play and inclusion and everyone getting equal game time. So with all these different philosophies, I believe clubs can lay out a five or six or seven expectations for when new coaches come in. We expect each child to be treated equally. We respect the referee. We respect the opponents. We offer equal game time to children. We offer inclusion to children. And I think if these were rolled out, we might see a lot more inclusion within sport because I suppose there's two ways of looking at it. There's the, the child-centered versus the coach-centered approach, you know? And the child-centered approach, the child is in the center of the coaching and all the coaching is designed to ensure the child has a really good time. The child is included. But the coach-centered side of it is, this is my journey, I am the coach, and I want to win. And I think we're looking at the child-centered approach being much more beneficial because, like, if your child is, is your project, you know, it's, it's doomed for failure. Mm. It's just doomed for failure. And there's plenty of examples of, of that, you know. And as, uh, uh, asking for a parent, I mean, how do we convince parents of the value of a child-centered you know, every parent gets excited if their child is good at something or, you know, that there's a potential and use that word. Every child has potential, but in my experience, some children find that word, it's pressure. Do you know what I mean? Oh, he's got great potential. And so at 10, they're talking about County or they're talking about playing for Leinster or they're talking about, and the the kid is just hearing this pressure. And 
it's very easy to get caught up as a parent in the excitement of talent and how do you I mean I, I I'm just wondering how do we encourage parents to have that same culture that values the child at the center of the sport because it's very different if you're a parent of a very skillfully talented sporty child versus the parent of the child who perhaps has a little bit of dyspraxia is a bit disorganized but yeah. loves the sport and you know your interest in focusing on and you talk a lot I've heard you speak before brilliantly about and I hope I get this right, ego development and skill development. Can you tell us a little bit about how, as parents, we can help to contain our own expectations and our own excitement over potential and encourage both of those two things? Or, or do we encourage one? Well, I suppose fundamentally, good people make good coaches. And the coach, like if you don't define why you coach, the parents might define it for you. So defining very early why you coach a team to the parents is very, very important. I'm involved in an under-9 Camogie team, and defining why we coach, we coach to keep as many children playing for as long as possible in a fun, relaxed environment. Now, that's the philosophy around that, and our numbers are increasing, thankfully, because we're meeting those needs. So defining to your parents what you value as success is very important too. And we spoke before about this, about, for every, the statistic is for 100 children in a GAA club, one will go on and play for the county. So does that mean the 99% are not as important? Do we not value those, nine, those 99%, those 99 other children who will be the bedrock of the club for future years? So it's valuing everybody equally, I believe, is what keeps people within the club. And to answer your question about, you know, the task for the egotistical theory, it's a very interesting theory. It's like, it's a motivational theory as to why children play sports. And the, the egotistical theory would be around, I'm going to play this sport because I want to be the best. I want to beat everybody and I want to get as many medals as possible along this journey. Whereas the task theory would be, you know what? I want to be the best for me. I want to do the best for me. And I want to be the best I can be for me. And I'm going to attempt this task to the best of my ability. And we see... Enough. We see very, very, very few children with the egotistical approach to it as in, I want to be the best. The majority of children are looking at, I see this task here, say it's throwing a ball. I want to do my best at this task and hopefully I'll be able to master this task. So be that throwing and catching, for example. And showing catching is one of the most fundamental um, actions we can have. And when I was coaching my seven-year-old yesterday, an awful lot of it was throwing and catching. And I value throwing and catching very, very highly because as they progress through the years, like, for example, if it rugby or GA or hurling, if you can't catch the ball, you're excluded very quickly. And sometimes we jump into other skills very, very quickly and presume that the child that gets a certain age, he must be able to roll lift. To get a certain age, he must be able to jab lift. Like there's no certain age any child needs to be to do anything. I mean, every, be yourself, everyone else is taken, right? You know, and we all, we all develop at different ages and different stages. But developing that show and catch, I believe, is very, very important. So we see a lot of kids being motivated by the task theory. I want to do the best for me because all you can do is the best for you. Like someone else's best is their best. Just be true and be your best for you. And that's the philosophy I think will keep more children playing. And how do we change that? Because, and I was just, this is, it's probably five months ago, I had a conversation with a group of young people that I was working with. And we were talking about children's sport. 
or teenager sport, actually. It's a little bit older now. This may be 14, 15, 16. And out of the group, there was one person who was still involved in sport out of the, the others. And the biggest complaint that they had at that age was there's no sport that doesn't take things seriously. So there's no, once you hit 13, 14, everything is about semifinals, championships, completing, all that sort of stuff. And so there's no, and I would like to call it the kind of five-a-side culture for teenagers. Do you know what I mean? Where they just turn up, play, nobody gets too het up about it. Like I play tag rugby on a Monday night and I love it. And it's competitive for the hour, but nobody, we're not, we're not achieving anything. We're not part of any leagues. We're not doing anything. We're just, as you say, kind of having fun. It's serious and we enjoy it. But the, there isn't a space, there isn't a five-a-side culture in teenage sport, is there? Or how do we create that? Uh, and I, I, I think about this, especially for girls. I think there's an idea that, you know, when they hit 14 or 15, the, the pressure becomes all about competition. And, does, and I suppose, does competition ruin sport for people? This is probably my question. But as a, te- as a parent of a teenager, how do you keep people involved in sport when that competitive culture is so pervasive? Well, does competition ruin sport for children? Competition is ruining sport for children. I agree with that. I agree with that. I mean, you look at down below the teenagers, I mean, under seven, under six. I mean, throwing children in at matches at under six and under seven. Like, what child at that age is ready for a match? They're not ready for a match whatsoever. I mean, we're rushing development as well. So what happens is we're, we're trying to get matches under six and under seven, whereas traditionally going back maybe 20 years, your first match was under nine probably. So it was a slower progress to it. And now kind of we're, you use the term, rushing to elitism. So I'd love to see that slow down a little bit because when sports becomes overly competitive, it becomes overly exclusive. Mm. And that exclusive model is what's killing our games. It's like when you have 10 v 10 on a pitch and two children are dominating, like that's not fun for the children who aren't getting much ball contact. Not fun whatsoever. So that's that exclusive model. That's a brilliant point, Shane, because I was, I, I was this soldier a few weeks ago, a Go Games under sevens. Um, and there was two young lads, on, one on each side, who basically were running in, scoring goals and points for fun. And there was, it was a, I think it was 10 v 10. But the other nine just became completely disinterested. They all switched off. They were all coming over to the sideline looking for a drink and want to go to the toilet, la, 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 la. As a parent, when you see that unfolding, I was trying to bite my tongue because I didn't want to be the troublesome parent who's saying, and I don't want to punish the two lads for being very good. But my thought was, could we not put them in goal for five minutes and just give the others a shot? And then it made me think, should we be having this match at all? Is 10 v 10 bananas at this level? And how, and and I could see my own lad coming off the, the field going, I don't know whether I'll be back next week. Do you know what I mean? There was a kind of a sense of that. And it's, it's, how, and I'm just thinking from the parent on the sideline who doesn't buy into competitive philosophy or has an issue that, and I, I'm guessing most parents just leave the sport or they just don't bring the kid back the next week or the, they just resign themselves that they're not sporty kids or whatever the case may be. How do we manage that as parents? Or have you any thoughts on that? I'm sure I'm not the only person who would have witnessed that and I certainly wasn't the only one on that day. So how do we manage that? Do we say something? Do we leave? Do we... 
it goes back. It, it, all, it goes back to club philosophy. It goes back to people. It goes back to other coaches. I'll give you two examples as well. I'll give you um, a not so good example where where I witnessed a couple of years ago. There was like twelve players at under eight. I heard one coach saying to the other coach, "Let's play eight aside and have four subs, and we roll on and roll off." What a great idea! And he said, "Oh no, no, in the best of intentions, maybe no, 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 no. Let's get them all on. Get them all playing." But I'm thinking to myself. And I didn't get involved, but gosh, no, don't put them all on there because it could just be like a rook. It was actually hurling under eight or nine, I think. So anyway, the other guy wasn't very cooperative. So he said, OK, let's just play 10 against 10 and we'll have two roll on roll off subs. But sure, it was just like 20 children running after one slitter and the ball wasn't moving. Every so often the ref would pick it up and throw the ball somewhere else. So nobody was winning there. Nobody mm. was winning. And I'll give you a really, a really positive story on, on how to how to move forward with this. I saw the same situation as well. And he had 12 v 12. Both managers had a chat. They looked at the length of the pitch and they said, you know what we'll do? We'll make two pitches here. We'll put two poles facing that goal. We'll put two more poles facing that goal. And one will play 6 v 6. And the success that was had at that 6 v 6 game was just phenomenal. The two teams played each other. So there was a 15-minute game. And another 15-minute game, they all played two matches each. I think the third game, they played against each other, their own clubs, actually. So you all got three games each. And, like, you look at just breaking down barriers around, like, you're, you have to do this, you shouldn't do that. This is two coaches using common sense, and it worked so well. Because, like, there's two ways of looking at it. Holistically, how much happier were those children playing 6v6? How many more ball contacts did they get? There's a really interesting study on basketball around technical elements and how we can improve technical elements. And the technical elements were increased by 60% when the team went from 6v6 to 3v3. So basically half the numbers on the, on the team and the technical elements went up by 60%. So that tells us that there's many more children involved. And we don't need to look too far on retention common and looking at other countries. For example, in New Zealand rugby, they actually asked the kids recently what they wanted in their sport. And the children said, we want fun and enjoyment. We want good skill development, which goes back to where their task for ego theory. We want good coaching structures. And this is the best one. We want not to take it too seriously. Wow. Isn't that just phenomenal? And that came from the children. And we're seeing countries like Wales, the Welsh FA, have now made alterations to their pitch and their goal size. And now under seven, it's 4v4. And under eight, it's 4v4. And under nine, it's 5v5. How progressive is that? And we're moving and we're learning and we're changing. And I think we're on the right path to learning what children want. And, and Shane, I... I, I, I... I've been an advocate of your model since I spoke to you last year. And I, I, was, I can remember having a conversation recently uh, amongst friends about this. Uh, and there was a mutter under when I'd finished where I kind of said, well, we can say goodbye to any more county championships if that's the way he's going to approach this game. So, so the, the, but you, I remember you talking to me and I think it was a Belgian model. Was it um, around how they approach soccer training in the smaller numbers. Am I right in that? Yeah, that's right. That's a man called uh, Michael Sablon, who was involved in the Belgian FA. And around the year 2000, he analysed 1,500 matches. And he found that some children in Belgium were touching the ball twice in each half, so four ball contacts in the game. So he totally ripped up the script. And they then introduced models around 
like I think it was 3v3 at under 8, 4v4 at under 9, just maximising ball contact, maximising opportunity for children to challenge themselves um, in that skills environment and maximising inclusion. So many, many more children felt involved like holistically first and foremost, but then their technical skills were increasing, as I mentioned a second ago. And then, of course, many years later, they produced players, um, world-class players like De Bruyne, like Lukaku, like Bertong and uh, Edwin Hazard, example. So you can see the technical elements there. And if memory serves me correct, they've been they've been favourites for the last couple of World Cups or European Championships. So they've got very technically gifted players because they just took a look at it back in the year 2000, ripped up the script and said, you know, we want to involve more for longer and make them, I suppose, give them opportunity for success. That brings it back to, again, something I, I, you've said to me before and I can't, I've listened to it. This idea that you might get two touches in a game, like you're not going to learn skills that way. And then the other thing was, I think you told me before, you don't become an elite player one hour a week at training. That's not, it's not your responsibility as the coach to make the elite player. That's oftentimes happens. No, like us coaches, yeah, I agree there. Like us coaches, we go up on a Tuesday evening from six to seven and we do our best for be it 20 children or be it 30 children. And as we include all for as long as possible, but like sometimes when it comes to play, like we're not really the experts in that the children are. You know, and, and as they go on through teenage years, you'll find, like, there's a, there's a natural dropout on the teenage years, too, and that's been well documented. There's a variety of reasons for that. It could be, like, biological, emotional. It could change school. They could fall out of love with the sport. It could be a change of coach. There's lots of reasons why they, why they drop out. But those who stay in sport and those, that very small percentage that maybe get get to the top or play for Leinster or play for Ireland, they're often the ones who get to the age of 15 or 16 and, and almost take ownership of their own performances and their own preparation. They'll be the ones you'll see out with 10 footballs practising their kicking. You know, they'll be the ones who will be very conscious that I really want to get this. And sometimes that has to come from within. There's some great sports books around the moment, you know, biography. That comes from within that person, not, not externally. And by us putting pressure on those children to do that, that means we own it. You know, and if we own it, it's no good. Like if someone gives us something for free, we seldom appreciate it, you know? When it mm. comes from within you and, and you earn it, you kind of respect it more. And that's what we see a lot with children when they get to those ages of 14, 15, 16. They might want to be a county minor. They might want to get onto a Leinster Academy squad and they're motivated that way. But that really should, that comes from within. Mm. And, and Shane, I mean, again, your philosophies, and I'm listening to them, I'm just nodding away here because I agree with everything that you're saying, but you're, you can still see, I mean, you're involved at the elite level as well. So from the point of view, this is not, you're not just kind of restricted to under nines. You have an overall philosophy on what it takes to be, to play at the top level as well as that. And does it mean being different or does it mean having different, or can you value it all? Can you, like... You know, are there, you know, the, the idea that there's a winning mentality and then there's a kind of a participation mentality and the, the idea that, you know, it's, it's, it's either really high competition levels or it's this kind of everyone wins a prize. And it's like, for me, there's a whole spectrum in the middle there that we're missing out on. You don't have to pick such a severe lane. But for someone who's involved at such a high level of elitism, but also being able to witness the importance of participation at all those age levels and everything that you've said, 
what's the how, how does that work like how do you manage that you're in yourself is it like like I, I, and I'm, I'm going to ask the question now I'm, I suppose I'm asking you is streaming a good idea or is specialization a good idea or how do we as parents support children who have high levels of ability high levels of comp- competition or high levels of enthusiasm but perhaps low levels of competition if you have two of those yes. different children how do you manage it yeah, specialisation is a very, very interesting area. Um, I, I don't believe it's just specialised too young. I believe that playing a number of sports, I, I read one article, I can't remember where it was, but I think they suggested that children play as many sports as they want up to the age of 11 or 12, then maybe choose two or two or three when they get to the teenagers, and then at 18 they might begin to specialise and focus on one. Because if you look at what sports can give us and, and when I'm setting up training for my under nine team or my under seven team, I always include lots of the fundamental motor movement skills like running, showing, catching, hopping, bounding, skipping, uh, coordination skills. If you take, say, somebody who wants to be a professional soccer player, like if they play hurling, they'll develop brilliant hand-eye coordination. If they play other sports such as basketball that develop really good peripheral vision and team play. Look at games like handball developing really good spatial awareness. Like the list is endless. If you look at athletics, they could have really good cardiovascular fitness. You look at tennis, you might have really quick feet. You play badminton, you might have really good reactions. And if you can develop the all-around child within, within those movement patterns, you have a brilliant opportunity to set that child up for success should they wish to pursue uh, one sport when they get to 16, 17 or 18. So the benefits of playing a number of sports are massive. And we see also injuries as well when we specialise too young. There's a a research study in America around baseball players who had shoulder injuries quite young because they're pitching all the time. You know, so only utilising one muscle group from a young age is not uh, the best for you either. So I'm a really advocate of incorporating as many sports as possible within your training because i'm not sure with covid and that can children go off and play a number of sports it's very very challenging right now the way things are so maybe when we go training we can incorporate those those sports ourselves if we can brilliant and then streaming is should there be a's b's c's d's what do we do about that is that or should it be all mixed ability because i i don't have a I don't have an answer to that myself. I think there's strengths and weaknesses in both. But what, have you any thoughts on that? The two of the most common questions that I get asked are, one is, should we stream? And two is, when do we get serious? Hmm. The two most common questions I get asked. And I haven't an answer for either. The second one, when do we get serious? The children will let you know when they want to get serious. The children will realize that they want to practice on their own, develop their left foot, develop their right foot, develop their free-taking. They will let you know. When they, when they want to get serious, you'll know. And it could be under 13, it could be 14, it could be under 16. But they will let you know. And let them, let them be the experts when it comes to that. From the younger ages in terms of streaming, like the, the, a question that mainly, like you're a parent, I'm a parent, and just parents listening, I suppose I'll ask this question. Would you, let's say your child is under 10, and would you like your child to play in Division 1 or the A Division and get two touches a half? Or would you like your child to play in Division 5 or 6 and get 10 touches a half? Mm. Yeah. So that's the question around streaming. There is studies to suggest that when we group uh, children together, there are huge benefits to that as well. 
Mm-hmm. So there's no real answer. Just there's interesting opinions about both sides. But I think fundamentally, uh, where will the child be happier? That makes absolute sense. And again, it is about making the decision based on the child. Do you know what I mean? There's, there may be a child who, who being on the A's is a big deal and they might not mind not playing too much game time because the, the notion of being on the A's is more important to the kid who, who wants to play. The last question, this is a personal question, Shane, but uh, I have a, a young lad who's, who practices celebrating uh, way more than he practices football. So he's got a thing about YouTube videos at the moment and to see his utter joy in just running around like doing the, the, the Ronaldo or the Messi and he, he's a kind of a, a huge academic interest in it. Should I be concerned? Isn't it magic how, how he loves to celebrate? Isn't, isn't it magic how the fun for him is celebrating? And we should never lose that fun. And I'll give you a really funny example. I was warming up an under eight or nine team a few a little while ago there before a match, before the lockdown. Or was it maybe? Oh, geez, it could have been just after the lockdown where, where, where we got back to play matches again. It was great. And um, I was warming them up and... Uh, Warming up was just a game of chasing because that's all it should be. It should be just a game of fun chasing, you know. And the ref blew the whistle to start the game. And uh, a few of the kids said, oh, can we just play uh, chasing a little bit more? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that, that was a timely reminder that, you know, not all children go up to the local club with dreams of playing in the Aviva or Old Trafford or, or Wembley or Crow Park. A lot of children go up just to meet their friends, to to have fun, to, to, to have races, to, to enjoy fun games, to meet new friends, to develop skills, to have the relay races. There's so many reasons why they play sport. And that was a real message for me, a little reminder going, yeah, do you know what? Not all children are up here to score goals and score points. Mm. And I always think of the thing we talked about, I don't know whether we talked about it on air or not, but you talked about on the Sunday morning match and say the, t- the under nines or the under tens lose, and he, you said by lunchtime, the kid is out on his bike, having forgotten about <laughs> it. And the coach is the one that's sitting in there at four o'clock <laughs> trying to see where it all went wrong. And I just, for me, that just stands out about kids are resilient about that. Yeah, they might want to know who wins and they're interested in that. But there is, there is a bounce back ability for them that sometimes as adults, we impose our own levels of intensity onto things. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, yeah. In many cases, you know, you go, you lose a, let's just say you, in your mind, is a big under 12 local derby. And in your mind, as the coach and the manager, it's a big, big game. But for the children, more often than not, they could be just playing against children from their school that they're going to play with on the Monday morning. <laughs> you know, it's funny, you know, so like it's, it's the perception of this too. And as coaches and managers, like, you know, we, we, we are role models. Whether we like yes. it or not, we, we are role models. And they say in life that children just need one role model in life to look up to. And I'm always really conscious of that as well. Like, you know, you can set really, really good examples around that. And it's, it's funny when we take it to heart sometimes. I know you, I was that coach, you know, taking it to heart. And you look out the window and they're all out playing on the bikes and they're scooting around and they're having the crack and they've forgotten about it. Because, like, everyone's naturally competitive. But after, mm. but children are, you know, they just, they just forget about it and life goes on. And in any walk of life, in any defeat, there's teams have lost all Ireland finals. There's, there's teams who have lost a couple of all Ireland finals and county championships. And there's Olympians who were favourites to win gold medals, but they didn't win them. 
life went on. Mm. Life mm. went on for those professional athletes at the Olympic level. And, and, and for children too, it is only recreation, it is only sport, and it is only play. And Shane, and I, I could talk all day here, but there's one thing I wanted to finish up on. And you spoke there about role modeling and you know how you were the coach that was probably getting upset that things weren't winning. And I, maybe not a lot of people know this, but can you talk us through your sporting journey from right our school journey or your experience because i think there's a there's a real story in this when i've you've told me this before but i just think you're as a role model for what's important for and everything that we've talked about over the last while has been about values what's you've, you have never mentioned rules you haven't mentioned that it has to be this and it has to be that you've mentioned about the value of fun the value of good people making good coaches the value of of connection, the value of achievement, the value of feeling heard, value of, of manners, thank yous, all these value systems. Where, where does that come from, from your personal experience in terms of how do you come to that realisation? I mean, through a coaching experience or a life experience? Through life experience, I think, because, you know, as well as a, an excellent kind of view on coaches, you, you're, you're, you're an interesting person as well. You've done quite a lot in terms of sports science and we haven't even mentioned the yeah. fact that you're a teacher and things like that and yeah. and yeah and a lot of what you say I think comes from experience but where does that experience come from or where does that kind of that really holistic view of success failure you know getting bouncing back up resilience the importance the stuff that really makes sense that value system how did you come to that yeah. in your own life well, I suppose it comes from making mistakes and being happy to make mistakes and being happy to learn. And I took a, a very different journey to become a teacher than, say, my friends did. Or, like, when I left school at, at 17 with a very, very average leaving cert, I went off and worked um, in a, a supermarket stacking shelves. I then went off as a labourer for plasters, which was really tough work. And from there, I went on to be an electrician. And I worked as a, an apprentice and a qualified electrician for six years. And like, while my friends went to university and college, I firmly believe I went to the university of life. Because when you are like 18, 19 years of age, and you're leaving the house at 6 a.m., and you're getting home at, at 6 p.m., it teaches you values, and it teaches you about perseverance. It's about life skills. And it's about communication skills. And... Um, I had so many experiences through that before I became a teacher. And then, like, like I didn't go to college until I was 31, Coleman, you know. It was wow. Probably quite late. Yeah, yeah. Quite late going to college. But like, I wasn't ready at 17. In fact, going back to primary school, you know, I remember like, sometimes being unable to sit still in school. I, I, I've had a very active personality. And, mm. like, I, I found it so hard to sit down. Um, and my, my wife says to me now I'm still the same sometimes you know <laughs> I, I find it hard just to relax you know but like in school I remember I in school I learned I learned a time quicker than anyone else because I was always watching the clock so for me the worst part of school was like between 11 and 12 30 and I'm 10 or 11 years of age and I learned the clock very young because I watched that clock tick around until it became 12 30 and that was my time to go to the yard and, and run around and release this energy but that was back in the late 80s, early 90s, when we knew a lot less about children maybe needing movement breaks. And, and, and that, 
that inability to maybe sit down and focus probably led to a really, really average leaving search for me. And I just could not focus my mind um, to study until later on. And why teaching, Shane? Why teaching? Um, when I finished work as, as an electrician in the 2003 or four, I got an opportunity um, from my club to work as a games promotion officer in the schools. And um, I used to go into schools and coach the kids. And I just found it a really, really nice place to be. I was really happy in that environment. And it's just such a positive, vibrant place. So from then, I, I worked there for five years. And then I, I decided in 2011 that to further my education, to pursue my education. And at 31, I, I walked into Tala IT to uh, pursue a degree in sports science and health. Um, our baby was only three months at the time. But it's something that I really wanted to do. And I felt that at 17, I wasn't ready. But I said, you know what? I'm going to give this a go. And, and if I fail, I fail. That's okay. But I'm going to try and give it a go. I think I'm ready now. And my God, did I get a shock as well. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was studying sports science. And the first semester, in order to get a degree in sports science, you've got to cover science. So the first semester was chemistry, biology, physics, and maths. And, um, <laughs> I just thought, I'm not able, I cannot do this. But with the wonderful support of my wife, we sat down, she helped me with maths. I, I couldn't believe it coming. I got through semester one. I got through semester two. and I, I got through year one and year two. And I was just, I couldn't believe it that the application and the hard work I was ready for, whereas mm. I wasn't ready when I stepped in. Yeah. And then the teaching came after that, Shane, was it? Uh, yes, well, I did four years sports science, and within those four years of sports science, in fact, in my third year in sports science, I resat leaving set Irish because I didn't get it when I did my leaving set back in 1997. So I gave that third year. I got my I got my level seven degree in sports science, and I sat leaving set Irish at uh, the same year. And that was the same year a little boy came along. So with two children under two at that stage, so it was it was go 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 and. And then in my fourth year in sports science, I sat leaving cert maths because I didn't get leaving cert maths back in 97. So um, I got my Irish in third year. I got my leaving cert maths in fourth year. I got my degree in fourth year, my level eight degree. And then that allowed me with the Irish, with the maths to go on and apply to become a primary school teacher, a two-year master's. So I then did the two-year master's um, in primary education and so so blessed and fortunate now to work as a primary school teacher in that environment. And Shane, I just lo I love hearing that story because I think it confirms the idea that of the value of experience. Do you know what I mean? You're, the philosophy that you bring to children's sports, to coaching, to what's important, it's come on the basis of having so many life experiences around, you know, what what is important at the end of the day in terms of, getting knocks and getting back up. And, you know, it's easy to think, you know, well, maybe this guy's coming from a story where he's had everything handed to him. Um, yeah. And it's easy to have these kind of, kind of ideologies when you haven't been, you know, disappointed yourself. But that's, and that's crucial part to the credibility of your story is that the stuff that you're saying is important comes from experience. It comes from knowing how to incentivize children. And it comes from, Again, I think your credibility as, as an elite level sports involved person as well. And look, Shayla, I'm just listening back to, to what we're thinking about in my own head. And I just, it comes back all the times to the values of what's important and how 
we need to kind of not sweat the small stuff and we need to actually take a step back. And that sometimes as parents, we can be our own worst enemy when it comes to children's sports. And as coaches, you know, it's really about taking the lead from them, isn't it? It's about well, what do you want to learn and what can I teach you as opposed to maybe coming with your clipboard and your plan. And I just think there isn't a sports club in this country uh, that shouldn't hear what you have to say. And I, I think it, uh, I think COVID offers us a pause button. And as we re-engage in children's sport, this is a real unique opportunity to bring a little bit of a philosophy shift and a cultural shift into it. And I think, to be honest, Shane, you are, are one of the leading voices in that. And I hope there's a lot of people listening. It's been a wonderful chat with you this, this week. And I've learned again so much. Every conversation, I take something different out of it. Shane Smith, thank you so much for your time, your knowledge, your energy. And um, go easy, go safe, and we'll talk again. All the best. Thank you very much, Colin. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And that was Shane Smith there. I always love my conversations with Shane because we always seem to, he leaves me with some kind of inspirational thoughts about how we can change this and what we need to do and how we need to, to make children's sport better, more participation and with more fun. And as we come to the end of the series, the next episode is our last episode of the series. And I've got a bit of a surprise for you. I'll be joined in the last Listener's Questions episode by my sister, Eleanor Nocter. And Eleanor has an interesting story to tell. She's the mother of two autistic boys and she's a warrior and she, is, she symbolizes what it means to be resilient for me. And I think you'll get an awful lot from listening to her story. And I've no doubt that knowing Eleanor as I do, she'll turn the tables on me as well. And so maybe I might be put on the spot to ask a few, answer a few questions that maybe I've posed to all the guests over the, the, the course of the series. So don't miss it. That's the last Listener's Questions episode, episode 16, and that will be out next Sunday. But until then, take care, stay safe, and bye for now.